Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, thanks for tuning into another of our virtual events. And today we have Mariah Fredericks. She's going to be talking about her brand new book, The Wharton Plot. And uh, she was kind enough to sign a batch of books for us. And uh, I'll go ahead and put a, a buy link in the comments field, should you wish to purchase one. Um, and also joining us is our friend Karen Oden, who has a, this is her most recent book, Under a Veiled Moon. Um, and I'm sure we'll have questions about the work in progress, Karen. I'm sure that will come up. But uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk to Mariah. And of course, Barbara, her, from her home office. Um, so if you have any questions for Mariah or Karen, go ahead and put them in and I'll come back on screen kind of towards the end of the hour. And I would be uh, happy to ask any questions you might have. So uh, Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much, Patrick, and welcome everyone. I'm gonna say at the outset, I have to duck out early because we do have a live event tonight at the store at seven with Brad Taylor. Um, and so my job is entertaining authors. So I'm taking them out to dinner and then we're going to the store. Here we are. Um, I'm delighted that we have a chance to welcome Mariah Fredericks back and our good friend, Karen Oden, who I might mention that her most recent book uh, has been nominated for various awards. So congratulations, Karen. It's really been lovely for you, hasn't it? It has. Thanks. Yep. 2023. So Mariah, um, there's a, a growing I don't want to say trend, but anyway, growing interest in historical fiction to base it on real events or real people. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen Jane Austen in numerous forms, and now we're finding other literary figures um, are taking the spotlight as sleuths. Um, I'm trying to think. Emily Dickinson was in a recent series. The Bronte sisters are in an historical. There's, you know, just all kinds of Queen Elizabeth. I'm not sure how that series is going now that she died. Um, but anyway, for a while, we had a British series um, where Queen Elizabeth was. And I might say that in times past, the first Queen Elizabeth was a sleuth in a number of Elizabethan mysteries. Anyway, Mariah has chosen um, the author Edith Wharton, who's, you know, an interesting character, fascinating, not always beloved, <laughs> um, a literary star, and yet, you know, not always beloved, as I mentioned. And we are in New York City in 1911. Um, and so she's not yet made a couple of major decisions that will change her life. And of course, the war hasn't come. So I guess, Mariah, if I were going to ask you a question to start out before Karen takes over, why did you pick 1911? Well, the murder at the heart of the story, um, the death of David Graham Phillips, um, he was also um, a novelist, uh, very successful in his day. And he was shot on January 23rd, 1911, outside the Princeton Club in broad daylight. And uh, his death was a huge sensation and ushered in the passage of the Sullivan Act, which made it a felony to carry a, any weapon small enough to be concealed uh, without a permit. So I'd always been very interested, I mean, the death of a novelist. I don't like the idea of novelist being shot. Thank you very much. Um, so the crime had always fascinated me because it does seem like a, an interesting inflection point between the opulence of the Gilded Age and the you know mechanized slaughter that we know is coming in a few short years. Excellent point. I know. You know, I'm always sad reading books set in the first decade of the 20th century, whether they're British, whether they're American now, because, you know, we know what's coming. We know that the world is going to change. We know there's going to be senseless deaths in the millions. We know that empires are going to crumble. But in theory, anyway, the people in the books in those time frames don't know that. And, you know, you I've sort of always got an impulse to, you know, to, to go like, stop and enjoy it or, you know, do something to warn them. But of course, we can't. For one thing, they're fiction. Um, and for another thing, we're not time traveling. But I find it I find it kind of a difficult time um, to read. And Karen, you know, you're you're back in Victorian. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot more certainty. I mean, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on. But um, the war, the Crimean War, and the other wars that the British Empire were fighting were generally not in Britain. 
Um, but, you know, so the British population themselves, while they knew they had people out fighting, were not in a wartime situation. It was remote to them. So, yes. you know, something you two might want to touch on. Anyway, Karen, over to you. What would you like to talk about? Well, I have uh, so very many questions. I have a nice long list here. Um, I just, just kind of as a little bit of backstory, um, I, Mariah and I met in 2019 on a VoucherCon panel because we were both writing historical mysteries. Um, at the time, you had just come out, I think, with the Jane Prescott book, yeah. um, the Jane Prescott series. And, um, and we've, we, you know, we've been friends ever since. And I did get to read, I was lucky enough to read the Wharton plot in a very early um, incarnation. I don't think it even had a title yet. And I loved it then. And I reread it this past weekend, loved it more. The prose is luscious, uh, and I felt myself not just in New York, you know, Gilded Age, 1911 New York, um, but also in Elizabeth or in Edith's like fraught, um, difficult state. Um, because this is a mystery, but it is also a novel about a woman, her identity, a woman at middle age um, making decisions. Um, so I do want to I do want to get to that at a certain point. But I guess my first big question is uh, I want to talk about the opening of the book. Okay. And um, one of my favorite uh, um, uh, author friends said once that you know setting can never be just window dressing. It needs to have some metaphorical resonance. It needs to have some meaning for the characters and so on. And that opening scene where you have a beautiful, exquisite tea room with china and I mean, a, a velvet pillow for Edith Wharton's dog. And I mean, it's gorgeous. Um, and then a train underneath rumbles by and shakes the whole entire thing. And it just seemed to me to be very suggestive of the way that the Gilded Age and all this polish is resting on top of a big, ugly chugging machine right. um, industry. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, about this tension between you know, the guild and the, the gilding and the, and the machine. <laughs> well, I wanted the book to start, we're five years after the House of Mirth, her big mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the book to start in an echo of that book. And what's interesting about House of Mirth is it starts with Lily Bart in Grand Central Station, sort of in between places. And it doesn't start in her point of view. It starts in Selden's point of view. You know, Selden paused in delight at the sight of Lily Bart. And I thought, oh, that's bizarre. Why did, why did she choose to begin it that way? And of course, she chose to begin it that way because Lily is an object who is being assessed. Like, is she, she's beautiful. Is she as beautiful as she used to be? Is she still as valuable on the market? Um, and of course, she's in a train station that, you know, beloved symbol of being in limbo. Um, so I wanted Edith to being assessed in a similar way. So her editor comes into the room and sees her sitting at the table. And she was in reality staying at the Belmont Hotel, which of course was built by August Belmont Jr. who financed the IRT subway line. And there was a subway going underneath. And I thought, oh, that's fabulous because the tremors would constantly be there. Um, so I love the idea of her in this fabulous pristine tea room with the constant tremors of change and disruption um, just underneath. And of course, just outside is Grand Central Station, which was in the process of being torn down and rebuilt simultaneously. So, um, so the truth gives you a lot. Mm -hmm. Can I just interrupt, and, and I don't want to sound pedantic here, but I am, mm -hmm. uh, but are we talking about Grand Central Terminal? We are, but she calls it Grand Central Station. Yeah, she does, but there actually, I mean, in, as I understand it more recently, there is a Grand Central Station and a Grand Central Terminal, but I wasn't sure if they both existed back then. Well, she uses station and the station just outside the Belmont Hotel was being rebuilt. I think terminal re refers to an earlier incarnation of it. 
No, they still call it that. Um, I only know that because Thriller Fest used to meet there and other stuff. But um, I don't remember whose book. Probably was one of Linda Fairstein's New York books where there was a plot that depended on Grand Central Station being different than Grand Central Terminal. Um, and, you know, I, I always called a Grand Central Station myself. So I was sort of surprised that it turned out there were two of them. But I didn't know what was happening in, in 1911, you know. I, I didn't realize... It was being rebuilt. Yep, yep. There were uh, there are fabulous pictures of massive uh, chasms of dirt being yeah. dug out around it, around the perimeter and um, scaffolding, and yeah, yeah. It's a huge edifice underground and up, you know, up above. Right. right. Sorry. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> so, so okay, and this is kind of touching on them. I just. I have to segue to the Gilded Age because of course a lot of people are watching the show, um, which I think we're getting a new season coming. Sure. So, so tell, okay, just give us a little bit about what you think about the show because it is exactly contemporaneous with this, with this period. What do you think? Well, it needs a guest appearance from Edith Wharton, obviously. It does. <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I told you earlier, he needs to kill all the servants. And I feel pained saying that because I love, I love the servant point of view, but he has two households, three of you include Peggy's family and it's so many characters. Um, and I don't think his heart is really with those people who are trying to be better and move up the ladder. Um, so, that's one thought I have. He won't do it. I think it's gotten a lot better in the second season. And I thought the finale of this season was really riveting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that next year they realize what they have in Morgan Spector and Carrie Coon and that the, uh, the George and Bertha Russell marriage gets a lot more complicated. Um, I, I think, you know, it's who doesn't love it? I mean, I tune in avidly and I pick it apart like every other, you know, mm -hmm. age of it, you know, um, but the cast is spectacular and the costume budget is quite suitable. Yeah. And the interiors are just absolutely spectacular. And I, I know that some of the characters are sort of, um, they have they have their counterparts in real life, some of whom you mention in the book, um, like the Vanderbilts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so uh i i didn't know if you I, I think that one of the things i loved about this book was that it plunged me in and people like jack london and henry james are just sort of people in the book you know right. as opposed <laughs> to you know these luminaries of, of literary you know the literary world um they're just kind of they're just kind of tossed in as her you know friends colleagues people she knows and of course she herself was always kind of on that border of being in the literary world and also in the sort of world of wealth and privilege yes. so somebody um, alice vanderbilt you should always have edith because she's to stay because she's one of the bohemians and i'm like oh, yes. <laughs> 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 that's sort of funny actually so um so could you um could you tell us a little bit um more about edith wharton's um background. I mean, when we meet her in this book, she is almost 50. Is that right? Yeah, she's uh, okay. 59. Okay. And so how do you see her background sort of playing into the person that she has become and what her, what her as, as a woman and as a writer, what sort of are some of her dilemmas that we're watching her sort of work through in this book? So many dilemmas. She has a lot of dilemmas. You know, she was born in New York in 1861 as part of the Jones family, um, who reputedly uh, inspired the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. Um, you know, old, old New York. The family fell on somewhat financially hard times, so they had to move to Europe the way one does when you're a little bit broke. Um, so she had um, quite the upbringing. Her mother would not allow her 
uh, writing paper beyond what she needed to write thank you notes and suitable little letters. Um, she was always a very, very creative child. Uh, she had one engagement to a young man, I think Henry Stevens, which fell apart. Um, uh, and the mother-in-law-to-be horribly leaked it to the press that the engagement had been broken due to an excess of intellectualism on the part of the bride. Um, so she was humiliated. <laughs> and her mother said, no Newport for us this year. We're going off to Maine. <laughs> Um, and she meets, she's always sort of knew Teddy Wharton. He was a friend of her brother's. He was a little odd, a little older. Um, I think they both sort of decided, well, we've got to get married at some point. Why don't, why don't we just do this? We both love dogs. Um, and so they went into it and one of the, the big sticking points for Edith was she was always very angry that she had been sent out into the world completely ignorant of the facts of life. There's a short story that people basically take to be her, where the young woman who's about to get married says to her mother, um, I gather something happens on that first night what like what should I know what do I have to do and the mother says well you've seen naked statues in museums figure it out um so I gather the understanding is that things did not go well for the Whartons in that respect they did not have children Teddy was uh mentally ill his father had been ill and institutionalized and had shot himself. Um, so Edith, at the point that we see her in 1911, his health is growing worse. Uh, he has been caught cheating with a young actress, which I don't think bothered her quite so much, but he's been using the family money to spend on her. And I think that did bother her. Uh, she herself is coming off her very, probably her first full-blown love affair undertaken in her mid-40s. She did not choose wisely. It was toxic and disastrous. Um, and I think at, the, at that point in her life, she was feeling, I don't understand which is supposedly my subject. Like all writers, she felt her publisher should be doing more for her. Um, and she was really feeling that she couldn't take this marriage anymore. Um, so basically, you know, we were talking about the guilt, the end of the Gilded Age and that sort of turning point. She's on the verge of turning her back on basically everything she's grown up with, like the entire, the mores and the social construct of, you know, upper class Gilded Age society. Yeah. And so her dilemma is, do I stay with Teddy? Do I go off to Europe myself? Do I send him away? Um, we, the only thing we know for sure she's keeping is her dog, Shumi. <laughs> yes, yes. And, um, and so, so that's, that's one of her kind of quandaries at the moment. Um, and then we have the other quandary, which is, what do I write next? Because She's sort of at a fork there too, because her most, I mean, is she, you know, House of Mirth did fabulously well. I think it sold like 150,000 copies or something like that. It would be is a bestseller right? today. Yeah, yeah, and it was huge. Um, but the next one she wrote was, wasn't it like a collection of short stories or something that didn't do so well? She was doing short stories and then her most recent novel, you get the sense that she was trying to tap into sort of the more socially conscious fiction of the time of the kind that David Graham Phillips was writing. So she wrote The Fruit of the Tree, which is set in a mill town, an impoverished mill town. Uh, she visited an actual mill for research. She didn't like it. It was loud. She left quickly. Um, and it was about euthanasia, it was about, you know, unions, and 
it was not what her public or publisher expected. And the Times said, central incident repels. Um, so she had two novels in mind that she was working with at this time. And one was Custom of the Country, which the publisher was very eager to have, a return to form and a story of an ambitious young woman marrying her way up in the world very cynically and high society and all that. And then the other was back to New England and a poor farmer trapped in a miserable marriage where he feels obligated to care for an invalided spouse. And yet he sees a chance of love um, that he can't have. So this Scribner's, I gather, was a little less excited about. <laughs> um, right. But of course, it so closely mirrors where she was emotionally and in her own marriage. Right. I, when I when I, I kind of did a quick re, revisit of Ethan Frome, which is the book that that is is based on that. And it, yeah, there's the love triangle. There's the invalid wife. There's the being torn between, you know, but it, and and of course, there's a tragic ending. Um, and, you know, for, for poor Ethan, uh, he, you know, he's in that terrible sledding accident. And um, he and his lover both end up, I guess she ends up paralyzed. He ends up with a big limp and, and everything. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I find it, I find it interesting that, you know, I mean, and of course her publisher was really kind of like, we want more house of like house of mirth, but different. Right. And that's right. what they were looking for with custom. Right. So, yeah. So she's so she's kind of at that crossroads too, and trying to negotiate that too with her publisher, who's trying to gently nudge her in one direction, and she kind of keeps pushing back. Right, right. Uh, so. And in the end, Scribner's got Ethan from, but she took another. She took custom to a new publisher. So yeah. I, I once saw an interview with the current uh, head of Scribner's, the family representative, mm -hmm. and when you talked about Wharton, you had this sense of like inherited trauma when he spoke about her. And she was such a difficult author. Um, and he's like, yes, we appreciate having House of Mirth and Ethan Frome. Um, so. Without yeah. Edith. <laughs> yeah. Without Edith. Right. I was looking up Muckrakers because, you know, I, I was thinking, I don't even know how it came up, not recently, but Upton Sinclair and, you know, that whole school of journalism um, was such a big force at the same time, or slightly later, maybe, but I thought it was really before World War One. Um, so was she influenced at all by that? Do you think Ida Tarbell and you know, there were women who were working in that field as well? Um, I think she would insist that she was not influenced by anybody, but it's it's interesting that the different fruit of the tree does not feel like a book. It feels like her reaching for something that isn't her natural milieu. Um, the term muckraker, David Graham Phillips reputedly is the first, is the first person to be given that title. Um, in 1906, he had a series of articles accusing various senators of being lackeys of wealthy families because nothing ever changes. Right. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt was so infuriated. He said, this man isn't a journalist. He just rakes muck. Um, so um, I, I suspect other journalists probably got that term as well. But since he was the one who got shot, he, he gets the title. So when you're writing historical fiction based on a real person, it really, in some ways, is really like writing a fictional biography or imagining, you know, a person's mm -hmm. life, right? Um, and so, you you know, you have to research any historical novel, but you're held to a different standard, aren't you? If, you're, if it's a real person, you can't distort their lives or, you know, do other things to them. So, you know, you would have had, in some senses, more freedom if you hadn't had Edith as the heroine of this book, but at the same time, since you did, you have to hew pretty much to the facts, even while you're making everything else up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's more fun that way. I mean, it's, you have to work with the facts, but they're Edith Wharton facts, um, which is pretty fabulous. Um, it gives you 
So, I mean, I could never have named a Pekingese Chumai uh, after a Japanese dumpling. Um, and yeah, I always think it's, it's much more satisfying for the reader, for the writer, if you work with the actual facts on the ground. I did fictionalize a few elements of the murder, but on the whole, um, it's as it was. But even though you have to stick to the facts of her life, you're allowed to imagine, you know, it's sort of like psychoanalysis or something you're allowed to. You know, I always admire because I, I, when Francine Matthews started out as Stephanie Barron to write the Jane Austen mysteries, I said to her, you know, why aren't you writing Cassandra? You know, I mean, we know too much about Jane Austen. She said, well, Cassandra was boring. But aside from that, um, her solution to it was to write in the gaps in Jane Austen's life. I mean, she had to stick to the basic facts, but she did all her investigations in those periods where the letters either had been destroyed or she'd write whatever. So she could imagine things happening that weren't documented, you know. Um, and so it was an interesting combination, I thought, of having to be familiar with the facts of Jane's life and yet then imagine things she might have done um, when it wasn't recorded. So was that true for you, that similar kind of a process when you were writing about Edith? Well, in Edith's case, I mean, a lot of her letters were destroyed, but a lot of them survived. I mean, she is, um, I mean, I was dealing with her letters and her novels and the accounts of her life and letters about her. So you have, you're sort of overwhelmed with material more than, you know, you have gaps to work with. So it's a different um, issue. Um, and so somebody asked me, how do you think she would, what do you think she would say about this book? And I said, she would say, how dare you? These are my, you know, there, I mean, there are a few, sections there's one where she's thinking about her body when she's um thinking about sex that are complete inventions they're not based on anything in her actual words but they're drawn from the spirit of her letters and her writing so i hope i'm not too far off no i don't think you are i have to get up and let in the puppies that are currently trying to scratch down my office door oh. so carry on I'll be right back. <laughs> oh. so one of the just kind of I guess you know thinking about you know this this middle-aged woman who's who's thinking about things like her body and her marriage and her um at one point you have a really wonderful moment in the book where she talks about um, how she hovers between the identity of Miss Edith Wharton and gulping sad-eyed Puss Jones, you know, and, you know, this, you know, I, I mean, and so, so there's this, there's, you know, throughout the book, there's a lot of um, thoughtful reflection, uh, I think, on the part of Wharton, which is part of the magic. I mean, the, the, the way that you managed to braid a real mystery that, you know, has, red herrings and and clues and all this other kind of stuff and then get all of this stuff about Edith Wharton in there um, so that we can understand what she's feeling and um, you know to some extent one of the characters makes the comment that you know this mystery is just a distraction because you don't want to be thinking about your issues with Teddy and your publisher right, but, right. but it's also you know it's also it's it's a real mystery but and it holds up but you know one of the things I was thinking about um was, uh, I don't know, maybe about four or five months ago, I read Adina Rayborn's book, Killers of a Certain Age. Right. And it's, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a total pleasure of a read. I think I read it in like two days. It was lots of fun. It's about, um, I may get something wrong here, but you can correct me. I think it's about four women, formerly of either MI5 or MI6. They're in their 60s. They know too much. And so someone has been dispatched to kill them. Um, but of course, instead, the four women end up killing him instead, and, and, you know, just mayhem ensues. And one of the things I loved about that book was how these women of a certain age had a very sly, um, sly kind of humor that it was a very particular kind. I found myself putting little smile faces in the, and not a laugh out loud, like guffaw kind of humor, but just these like sly little one liners. And interestingly, as I was reading this book, I was finding the same thing. Like, um, here's my copy with all my little like. <laughs> my little things. Here's here's a comment from um, 
that Edith makes. Um, she's, she's, she's talking uh, to someone who's, who's not very uh, engaging. She says, what a joy you must be to live with, she thought. You know, we've got this, and, and, and they, they're kind of throughout the whole book. There's mm -hmm. these little tiny bits of humor. And I feel like to some extent, um, this book is participating in a conversation that I have begun to kind of see some momentum with. Um, and maybe Barbara, you can speak to this about women of a certain age um, doing interesting things and laughing and having girlfriends to laugh with and being a little bit raunchy or even rude or snarky. Um, and I just, I just wonder what you think about that. Well, you're, you're definitely, it's a, it is a rising trend. I think one is in recognition that there are older readers. I think another is recognizing that um, older women can, you know, find love and have sex lives and actually do, you know, interesting. Did you read about the 99-year-old woman swimmer who broke the world records, um, you know, for her age group the other day? And I think it's a picture of her. And, you know, if you didn't know she was 99, you'd think that she, you know, was in her maybe 70s or something. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a recognition that they make relatable and interesting characters. And also, as you point out, you can have a different kind of humor when you're dealing with, you know, seniors than you do when you're dealing with younger people. You also can disable technology if you want to, you know, on the theory that maybe, although many seniors are savvier than many, you know, many young users. So I don't think that, anyway, um, yes, and that's an example. And there's a new book, I'm trying to remember if it's called The Exit, the something or other, Exhibitionists and something. And, and it's two nonagenarian British spies from the war who um, have not let each other know all the things they got up to during the war. And now they're having to come together to, um, I can't remember the pretext, but anyway, part of the problem is they don't want to tell each other what they actually did in the war. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, a variation on, on the killers of a certain age where these women were empowered. And I'm happy to say Deanna is writing um, another book about them along with her um, Veronica Speedwell series. And, you know, we're seeing it with men as well as women. Um, and I, you know, that before I go, let me ask yeah. you, oh. I, since you've done all this work, uh, Mariah, on Edith Wharton, and she has a long way to go. Are you thinking of writing any more about her, or is this a one-off? Um, the next book is not Edith, but I keep dropping gentle hints to my editor, and she keeps smiling discreetly. So I, I think, you know, they're waiting to see, um, you know, if everybody loves Edith, um, I would be thrilled to do uh, more. Uh, she's a wonderful character to live with, but um, as, as the, it was written as a standalone. No, I thought it probably was, but then she really has taken on a life and she has so much of her life to go. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, she didn't die off just because she was 50 and she did a lot of dramatic and interesting things. She went to Europe, you know, she got divorced, she did all this stuff. And I think she's a really interesting character. She wrote a mystery play. I mean, it's how much more perfect can we get? Um, yeah, no, she wrote her three of her most significant novels after this time. So right. uh, lots of stuff. There's plenty of room for her, you know, to, to work on other things, even if not real life cases. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, a, you know, an actual murder, but, you know, you can make stuff up after all. And it's going to be wartime before we turn around. So mm -hmm. she can even get involved in that. You know, Edith Wharton spy would be kind of fun. <laughs> Along with Mary Roberts Reinhardt, she was uh, involved with the war efforts as well. So yeah, yeah. unite them. Right. Sorry, Karen. Back to you. Oh, um, so okay. So speaking about um, uh, Reinhardt, she shows up in the yes. book. Yes. So did they, do you know if they actually had conversations ever? Did they ever meet? You know, I don't know. I, I The conversation was based on nothing beyond my determination to get Reinhardt into a novel <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> because I, I just, I, I love her. Um, and I just thought it would be funny um, since she had this huge hit with the circular staircase and the amateur yeah. swoon. 
they could have an amusing conversation with, you know, readers lose patience when the amateur sleuth endangers themselves stupidly um, because it's a complaint you always hear um, from readers. Oh, going to the attic, right? Whatever. She was right. great on that. Right, right. She was right. So Do you know or did you notice that I can't remember which August publication reviewed your book very favorably? That um, both the both the reviewer and the editor of the publication misspelled Reinhardt's name. No, I was so shocked. You know how it is when you see something and it's R H I E N, and I thought that can't be right. You know, right. Um, so I looked it up and I corrected it in, in my own. But I thought, you know, maybe she really is obscure now to the point where people don't, you know, recognize how to spell her name. I've had reviews that say, I really didn't know any, I had never read Edith Wharton. I didn't know anything about Edith Wharton. I mean, you know, so yeah, I think these, these people are becoming somewhat obscure. Um, but you know, it's interesting. We were talking about older women as um, the center of novels. Um, and I remember when I first started thinking about the Lindbergh nanny and Betty Gao, and I thought, oh, she actually existed. And I remember Googling her and thinking, please let her be young and attractive. Please let her be young and attractive. And she was, and so yay. But I thought, that's terrible. Why is it so essential that the detective be a 20-something year old woman who is attractive. I am not a 20 something uh, year old woman and most of the readers I know aren't. Um, and I think writing about 20 somethings brings you a lot. You know, they're, they're, they're in the world, everything is new. There's a certain naivete perhaps that's forgivable. Um, they tend to pick people their age as love objects, so that's nice. Um, but, you know, I remember the women that I really responded to growing up as role models were funny. I remember Carol Burnett just having this incredible self-possession um, and authority. Um, and, you know, uh, Irma Bombeck. I love Fran Weibel. I mean, all those, I, mean, I think there's something really powerful about women using wit because it shows a certain detachment from the situation and an ability to control it. So you get a certain response, which is the laugh. And it's, you know, it, it runs counter to the endlessly nurturing, endlessly helpless, endlessly, you know, there for other people narrative. So I, I think it's not surprising to me that, that the older women detectives use wit um, as an indication of, of power and savvy. Um, and, and they've made many of their life's bad decisions already. Um, right. That's a topic we've talked about some is that um, I did I did an event earlier this month with an author who was focusing on um, two girls going off to college for the first time. And we all agreed that that's maybe when women are most vulnerable. You know, they're leaving any kind of structured life. They're going off. And of course, my experience of college in 1958 is so dramatically different. You know, we, we still had structure, you know, Mrs. Stanford it left us, you know, in her will. We had dress codes. We had you know, oh. we lived, we didn't have co-ed dorms, you know, we had curfews and all the rest of it. So we couldn't actually do as many stupid things or ill-judged things, let me put it that way, as <laughs> the girls in this book. Um, and so, you know, I I think when you're writing about younger people, you have to allow for that. You have to allow for them to make impulsive or, you know, ill-informed or ill-judged, however you want to call it, hormones are ripe, you know, whatever it all is. Whereas if you're writing about a woman who's 50, you know, she's probably made most of her big mistakes already um, and forgiven herself or learned to live with them or whatever happens to you, you know. Um, I don't know. Do you think women experience as many, mid I mean, are as prone to a midlife crisis as men are? I, I don't think we're not prone to live. I mean, part of what was interesting to me being a person in my 50s is you do lose 
some things. Things change. Um, and that it's a real adjustment. Um, I think it's how, I mean, it's a question I would guess of how much you regret um, um, and what opportunities you didn't take. Um, Where do you get to be 80? <laughs> you, get, you, get yeah, but, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not still making mistakes or, you know, losing my right. temper when I shouldn't and that kind of thing. But, it, you know, by the time at my age, your basic life decisions have all been made, you know, now you're just rolling with, you know, however that's going to go. But I think I think women in middle age still have a lot of potential for changing things up, you yep. know. And so that's what Edith is doing. I mean, she's thinking about divorce. You know, she's strengthening her literary career. She's going to move out of the country. You know, she's going to do all these things. Still, her life is is not over, you know. Um, so, but she's making those decisions in a more informed way than if she were 17 or 18 and being pushed by her parents or, you know, governed by hormones or whatever. In fact, that's how she got married to Teddy in the first place, right? Is that, you know, he was kind of the best of, of the possible <laughs> yeah yeah he was he was a, a last option um no I, I dedicated the uh the book to my son who's 17 about to go off to college next year because he said I want to I you haven't dedicated a book to me and at first I thought oh this is an odd book to dedicate to a young man who's about to launch himself into the world and I thought then you know, he should see that change happens at every stage of your life. You, you know, it's not it's not just for the 18-year-olds. No, so. Well, on that happy note, I'm going to say thank you very much, Patrick. Feel free to join in because you're going to take over. Um, thank you very much for your discussion, both of you, and please go on with it. I really hope that this will be the first book in a series. I'll, I'll mention that to your publisher because I think there's a lot of potential in Edith. Um, and I think that, I think that readers, you know, it could be a trilogy, you know, it doesn't have to be a forever series or something, but there's so much left to explore that I hope you get to do it. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. And, you know, I want to say again to Karen, I don't know why I default to Odin when her actual last name is Odin. I get it wrong every single time. But you didn't get it wrong this time. Oh, good. I was afraid. <laughs> I couldn't remember. So in case I had gone wrong, I wanted to apologize right now. No, so no, anyway, no, no. have fun, guys. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Barbara. Barbara. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to ask real quickly about uh, Edith Wharton had a had a very famous friendship correspondence with Henry James, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Was um, did you read some of those letters? Was that it all entered? You know, Henry James is her sounding board in this uh, because when she was in crisis, she said, "I need you to come uh, help me figure out my life," and he came. He stayed at the Belmont Hotel, um, and she and Walter Berry, her oldest friend that many people thought was her lover, and Morton Fullerton, who was her lover, all had dinner together. Um, so yes, Henry and Edith had a fascinating, somewhat prickly friendship. Um, they sort of picked of each other's um, novels. I mean, she said, much as I delight in the man, I have not been able to read anything he's written in the last <laughs> decade. Um, and, you know, he said, she consumes people as I don't even consume apples. She uses up everything and everyone. Um, but he really was her confidant. He's the person who said to her, do New York. That's your subject. That's, that's what you know. Um, and uh, she was always trying to get him the Nobel Prize, um, and she was always trying to raise money for him, which he he found humiliating. Um, poor man. Um, yeah, I remember. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Karen. I was just there was this wonderful moment at the very end when, in a in an act of true tenderness, true friendship, um, she goes to Henry James editor or publisher, I guess it is, and says, I want you to give him a significant advance. And he's like, well, it depends what it is. She's like, no, 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 I'm gonna give you $10,000. You're gonna give this to him. 
And it's this moment of, of, of where, you know, it's, it's such a, it, you see, I mean, one of the things I think as readers, we all are reading for is that character arc. How does she change? And you can see the beginnings, not just in the, in, in that she has, um, you know, help solve a mystery and she's come to some conclusions about what she's going to do about Teddy and her publishing career, but there's other things too that indicate um, a kind of growing, you know, with her, with her own sense of self-changing, mm -hmm. she can become less selfish and more concerned about others. And, you know, when, the, when, Bar when I think it was Barbara asked a question about, you know, do you think women have, um, you know, middle-aged crises the way that men do? I think certainly, I know women who do, but I also wonder if friendships like Henry James and, you know, and, and even Morton Fullerton and certainly um, Welter. Welter. Yeah. Um, I mean, the friendships help, I think, keep people from having complete. Yes. You know, I mean, I think that having that kind of continuity helped Edith. And that kind of came across, I felt, in the book that she, you know, might have been in turmoil, but she had some moorings. She had some, she had some solid ground under her feet. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so sorry, Patrick, what were you going to say? No, uh, I was just thinking about how does uh, Dante's Inferno open, you know, uh, midway on our life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood, you know, um, just the classic midlife, cri <laughs> midlife <laughs> crisis, really. I mean, kind of lost a sense of, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, should I get to some of these questions from the online audience, maybe, or? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Renee asks, are there really dog ghosts at Edith Wharton's Lennox mansion? There is a charming dog cemetery. Um, I didn't see ghosts when I was there, but maybe I was there at the wrong time of year. Um, I hope there are. <laughs> Um, some of these you've dealt with, or you've already addressed, which is how did you conduct research for this book? Is there anything more that you'd like to add about your research? Um, well, at the end of this book, I swore I would never write another book about writers because, you know, you're not only dealing with their lives, you're dealing with the novels that they wrote, and the letters that they wrote. And um, so I had to read David Graham Phillips, when he was shot, was on the verge of publishing his masterpiece, which was this huge, explosive, scandalous novel. And I had to read 700 pages of it. And Wharton was kind to it. I think it's dismal. Um, it has lines like, I'm a bad girl, bad, go, a bad, bad, please go. <laughs> yeah. Love, love. She was a woman and she loved. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want a research challenge like that um, anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> Just did she keep a journal? Did Edith? Did Edith keep a journal? Um, I am trying to think. I think I know she kept some sort of a record of her relationship with Fullerton, which she called a love diary. Um, but I've only read her letters. Um. Another question that's come in is: um, Are there any other sort of literary figures that uh, interest you enough to to write about them, perhaps in the future? Oh well. Um, you know, for a while I was looking at E.B. White um, because he has um, a really fascinating take on um, atomic weapons. And I was really interested in doing the 50s through E.B. White's eyes and that paranoia and that we're supposed to be triumphant, but now we're all convinced the world is going to come to an end. And A, I don't think I can ever write in his, it's so clean and pure. I think it'd be very hard to do. And he's a very recessed character. So he would be difficult to anchor a novel. But my next novel is the original locked door, locked room mystery. Um, Joseph Elwell was murdered in 1920 in New York City in his, his brownstone 
townhouse. All the windows and doors were locked and he was found with a bullet through his brain and no gun. And the person who's going to be solving this is not S.S. Van Dyne, who wrote the first Philo Vance based on this case, but uh, a young man named Morris Markey, who would become the true crime editor for The New Yorker. And the reason that Markey is solving the crime is that 30 years after the Elwell murder, he wrote uh, one of his last articles for Esquire on the case. And shortly thereafter, he was found in his home with a bullet through his brain. And assisting him, because you can have no novel about New York in the 1920s without them, will be Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald with a cameo of Dorothy Parker. So there goes my pledge never to write about writers ever again. Wow. Had, you know, during um, Edith Wharton's time, had Max Perkins arrived on the scene yet, or is he later? I think he is later. Just after um, that, maybe. Yeah, he's he's Fitzgerald and Wolf. Um, right. She had um, Brownell was her book editor, and Burlingham was her magazine editor, and she later worked with Rucker Bleeker Jewett. Yeah, some of those, um, you know, that that sort of golden era of, especially New York journalism. You know, you go back and read the you know, the Joseph Mitchells and the A.J. Liebling, you know, and um, just the, the caliber of the work is is so incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Here's a question from one of our YouTube viewers. And again, you've addressed this a little bit. Uh, Pamela asks, uh, Mariah, how were you inspired to write this book? What were your experiences right at the idea's birth. Did you go looking for a famous woman from a particular time or was it some other spark? Um, well, as I say, the Phillips murder had always fascinated me. And when uh, I suggested it to my editor and she said, we'd really like a woman to anchor this book, and I thought, oh God, you know, who's going to be, you know, in New York, who's empowered enough and, you know, imperious enough to go digging into mysteries. And I thought, oh, what was Edith Wharton doing? Um, and because I had had this idea of writing about someone who is not in her 20s, um, who, you know, as Barbara said, has made some mistakes and is assessing does everything, every, is everything that I've built in my life still working for me? And I think that that was a question that a lot of people asked themselves during COVID. I'm sorry to bring that into the conversation. Um, but, you know, I, I'm perfect. I, I have no changes to make in my life. I'm very, I'm very happy, but I think it is a time where I was sort of grappling with like, okay, we're at a certain point in life and let's assess where, where are we headed? Does everything still work okay? Um, because you know, you've got more of life behind you than you do ahead of you. So I think that that was um, you know, some of the emotional components that went into why I responded to her point of crisis so powerfully and why I found it so inspiring that she's like, I am not going to be irrelevant. I'm not just gonna sort of fade into the dust and I'm going to march forward and keep engaging with life. I wanna know with the cover, you know, there's all those memes about women with their back to the, right. the viewer. Edith is face front and marching forward. Um, and I'm really glad that they made that choice for her. I like how her face is just a little bit obscured, you know, so kind of a mysterious look mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have, do you, and then we'll, um, we'll ask Karen a few questions too, but um, do you have a favorite of uh, Edith Wharton's novels? from which I've 
discovered many people don't. Um, I love Age of Innocence, um, but one of my favorites is a short story of hers called Mrs. Manstey's View. And it's a story about a lovely genteel New York woman who realizes that her neighbor is building an extension to her house that's going to block her view. And she broods and she fumes. And one night she goes out in the bitter cold and she burns that damn house down. And she catches pneumonia, but she dies joyfully gazing at the charred ruins, knowing she has stopped that house from blocking her view. And I just love that story as a New York story. Yeah, it's, that sounds very satisfying. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, Karen, yeah, some questions. What, what, what are you working on right now? And can you tell us about uh, your work in progress? Uh, I actually just turned in my sixth book to my agent, mm -hmm. and I haven't heard back from him yet. Um, I know he's got a lot on his plate right now, but it is a story about a young woman named Gwendolyn Manning. She is a novelist in 1872, and her best friend from childhood is a man named Lewis. And he is, he's what we would call on the spectrum. He's brilliant. Um, uh, the Victorians call him eccentric. And in 1871, he goes to Africa with Henry Morton Stanley for the famous Dr. Livingstone, I presume, tour, which actually never really happened. It was made up for the newspapers. And um, he comes home with a story about slaves and ivory and gum copal and diamonds and gold and more slaves that nobody wants to hear. And so three quarters way through the, he's three quarters way through writing this book and he's murdered. And so Gwendolyn and his brother, who has actually just come back from the reporting on the Civil War in America um, and its aftermath, um, the two of them have to figure out what happened to him and they have to find this book because it's gone missing. Um, and part of the reason that I, 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 you know, there was a very natural ticking clock, you know, it's like uh, Mariah was talking a little bit about how we bring the true stuff in and it's very satisfying to find those true things that hold up kind of like um, my friend Aaron Flanagan called it the uh, the bumpers on the side of the bowling alley. It's 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 satisfying to find those. It's not kind of all over the place. But one of the one of the bumpers for me is that in the 1870s, um, a group of heads of state of Europe got together because they were going to partition out Africa, because of course Africa is like a pie that you break up into pieces for all the people who are in 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 Europe and want parts of it. Um, so people from France, Germany, um, Belgium, another I mean all. All the different countries were were going to get together and talk about okay how do we partition out this this continent, and so this book is going to be important. Um, and what I want you know I, so I wrote this book actually a draft of it before I wrote the Coravin books before I wrote Found a Dark River and Under a Veiled Moon, and you know sent it to Josh my agent and he was like yeah this is this is good but um, you know this isn't kind of what they're looking for right now they want something different so I you know wrote something else and. When I came back to it about eight months ago, I realized that what I really wanted to write about was the problem of writing history. Because you think about it, Henry Morton Stanley and Lewis were in a tent together for a whole year. They lived side by side, did every single thing together. And Henry Morton Stanley came out with a book that was sort of, Africa's fabulous, I'm fabulous, the natives love me, the elephants are beautiful. And Lewis came back with a very different book. And so, you know, the, the, the book opens with the line, you know, every true history is a fiction in one way or another. And that's what I'm interested in writing about right now. So anyway, so I, but who knows if this is even something that's gonna go anywhere, I don't know. So like I said, my agent has it, we'll see what he says. So you haven't sold it yet? No, no, not, not yet. Well, that no. sounds absolutely fascinating. No, I like it. <laughs> I read an early draft of this one and it's really fantastic. It's, it's gonna land, I'm sure of it. That's great. Um, let's see. Someone would like to know, Mariah, do you live in New York? I do. I have all my life. Um, I am in Queens right now. I've done, I grew up in Manhattan, moved to Brooklyn. Now I'm on my third borough. Okay. Well, I think that that, unless I'm missing anything here, I think you've addressed everything else. So, um, thanks for a fascinating program. And congratulations, Mariah, on the publication of the new book.
the Wharton plot. Thank you for signing books for us. And Karen, thank you as always. It's nice to see you again, albeit on the screen. Um, thank hope you. to see you in the store again soon. And um, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Um, no, just it's always a pleasure. And huge thank you to Poison Pen and Karen for doing such an amazing interview. Thank you. Well, thank My you. Pleasure. And thanks everybody for tuning in and um, have a great evening. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.